Today is a very special conversation, as are all the conversations, featuring two guests. Dr. Yusuf Salam was just 15 years old when his life was upended after being wrongfully convicted with four other boys in the Central Park Jagger case. In 2002, after the young men spent years of their lives behind bars, their sentences were overturned, and now known as the Exonerated Five, their story has been documented in the award-winning film The Central Park Five by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon, and in Ava DuVernay's acclaimed series When They See Us. Yusuf is now a poet, an activist, an inspirational speaker, and he is the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from President Barack Obama, among others. My other guest, Ibi Zuboy, is a novelist and editor born in Haiti and raised in Brooklyn. She found a love of writing and poetry and eventually pursued her MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts before launching a career in journalism and then fiction. And her novel, American Street, was a National Book Award finalist and a New York Times notable book. And she's also the author of Pride and My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, which was a New York Times bestseller, and the editor of the anthology Black Enough. And the two met briefly some 21 years ago. That led to a walk and talk that took them from Midtown Manhattan to Harlem, which, if anyone knows anything about the city, is a very long walk and a deep, deep conversation that would eventually bring them back together decades later to collaborate on a YA novel called Punching the Air that integrates use of story and poetry and illustrations with Ibby's powerful storytelling to create a novel in verse that speaks so deeply to issues of equity, dignity, art as therapeutic expression and restoration. We drop into so many of these points along each of their journeys and explore how they came back together to create something truly extraordinary. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So you both met originally. It was 99. There was a class at Hunter College where you were both attending. And, and I want to talk about that moment and what, what came out of it, because I know there was a conversation that began that took you on a walk from 68th Street up to Harlem, which for those who are not familiar with New York City, is not a walk that's often done. <laughs> and then it kind of vanished into the background for a number of years before it led to this recent collaboration. But let's let's sort of put a hold on that for the moment, because I'm also curious. So the, the decade or so leading up to that meeting in 99 was profoundly different experience of life for each of you. And I want to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll work our way back to that meeting and then forward from there. Why don't we actually start with uh, Ibi, Ibi with you? I know originally born in Haiti, um, raised in, in uh, Bushwick in Brooklyn at a time where, um, for those who know Bushwick these days, a lot of times people associate it with gentrification, um, a lot of hipsters, amazing street art, and art, quote, artisanal food. 80s and 90s, very different place. Right. I um, immigrated to the United States from Haiti in 1981. I was four years old. And the neighborhood that my mother could afford, and it was just me and my mother, was Bushwick. Uh, so Bushwick at the time was very broken and dilapidated very much like the Bronx and Harlem. So these neighborhoods had run down buildings, burnt out buildings because of the economic strife that was in New York City in the 70s. So she rented a top floor apartment in a brownstone by a friend, um, a friend of a friend, another Haitian immigrant who had his own business in the basement floor and he was a tailor. And Bushwick at the time was affordable for a lot of immigrants because it was sort of no man's land. And uh, for a long time, it was just me and her. I left Bushwick in 1987 and uh, we moved to East New York, Brooklyn, another broken and dilapidated neighborhood. That's another place that she could afford. So as an immigrant, I was aware of New York street culture, but was not part of it. I was a child, of course. So as a single mother, she was very overprotective. And I watched New York City through the top floor window of a building or a brownstone apartment. And when I was allowed to play with the neighborhood kids outside, I got made fun of and teased. But one important aspect about my growing up in New York City is the level of fear that my mother had um, around the neighborhood kids. So I now I know that kids are just being kids. They are a product of their environment. But as an immigrant, as um, a single mother, my mother was a single mother as the only, her only daughter for a time, neighborhood kids were sort of a threat. She was mugged in uh, Bushwick Park. And she was mugged a, a few times, in fact. And that sort of fear she instilled in me for a very long time up until, you know, high school, when I started, you know, having boyfriends, she still remembered the neighborhood kids being sort of a threat. 
And um, I was actually in sixth grade in East New York, Brooklyn, when the Central Park Five case had happened. But before that, I remember Bernard Getz and the subway vigilante trial. I remember all those other racial violence incidents in New York City. I watched it in the news. I was a latchkey kid. And this all filtered into just my whole view and perspective of New York City as a child, as an immigrant child, and as a girl, quite frankly. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a sense of um, danger that is, that is built into you. I, I, and I mean, and tell me if my understanding is wrong also. I mean, part of, I know your mom sounded incredibly protective. I'm curious also whether that was entirely a response to just what she was experiencing in and around New York in the 80s, or whether some of that also was drawn from the circumstances that led her and you to originally leave Haiti in the first place, where um, she was essentially fleeing a relationship for safety purposes for both of you. Yeah, exactly. My mother was a broadcast journalist in Haiti, and my father was the owner of the radio station, and he was 30 years older than her. So what she was fleeing, in a sense, was another form of patriarchy that looks somewhat different than it does here in this country, in that women go into relationships for financial support in a, in a different way, um, or fear. There is no choice. Um, as I tell young people when I talk about my immigrant story, is that there is no se sexual harassment in a third world or developing country. There is sexual harassment, but there is no calling it out. Me Too movements look very different in, de in the developing world. And my mother fled Haiti because she was in a very toxic relationship that wasn't a relationship with my father who was already married with two children. So yes, that sort of relationship to the men who are in our communities, the sort of violence that can result um, from that sort of power structure, uh, we both took that with us to New York City where idle men were a threat. A boyhood culture, that sort of um, brazen boyhood culture that was so much a part of New York City was a source of fear for her. And over time, um, my, my little brother was born. Over time, she just understood New York City culture and American racial politics a little bit more. And that, of course, changed. But she was in her 20s. I was a child. And we can't, I, I can't forget the fact that that was part of our worldview, along with the violence that was so pervasive in New York City at the time. Yeah, it sounds like for you also, at least in part, art and eventually writing almost served a dual purpose as a um, form of expression, but also refuge to a certain extent. Absolutely. I didn't want to be a fiction writer at first. I wanted to be a journalist because, as I mentioned before, I was a latchkey kid and the, you know, the four, five o'clock news, the six o'clock news, 1010 winds playing in the background. New York just was it was an endless news cycle in New York. There was always something happening and it was always making the news. And that was part of my subconscious uh, as a child. And of course, there was the New York Daily News and Newsday and New York Post uh, was always at my home. And I was just inundated with information. I was fascinated because I was an immigrant and I wanted to understand this world that we had just moved into. So for me, processing what was going on and what sort of 
planet that I had, we had just come into because I always felt that we were aliens because we had uh, current green cards that said resident alien. And um, I um, read that, you know, to mean that we are actually aliens um, as a child. But this is how I processed information. This is how I processed a new country and a new culture. It was through the news, but the news wasn't always, you know, um, fluffy. And, you know, it wasn't always good news. And in New York City, Black boys and Black men were always the headlines. And it was just not the descriptors for Black men and boys were not always good. Not good at all, actually. And that also shaped my worldview. Yeah. You end up going to um, school, moving through a, a, a window where uh, you start, um, sounds like focused in the early days uh, in a very politically minded, almost thinking you might be a lawyer and then somehow navigate to vegan, slam poet, artist, um, but come out, I guess, with more of that sort of like journalist intent and really pursuing writing, eventually getting the masters. And so you're pursuing this and sort of saying, okay, so this thing that was a form of, of refuge, synthesis and expression, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study, I'm going to pursue an education in it and then move into the world and start to do it, which I think brings us pretty close to that first meeting in 9900 College. Meanwhile, Yusuf, um, your life leading up to this point is profoundly different. Absolutely. Absolutely. My life, um, actually, no, I shouldn't say it's profoundly different. I wouldn't necessarily describe it that way up until I was the, I was at, you know, at the age of this terrible incident happening to me. I think um, prior to that incident, the experience that we would have in this country was a shared experience. I used to wonder why was I um, cool with everyone? Why was I, why was I accepted by everyone? And it wasn't until I got older, and even um, I want to say even in until maybe a few years ago as well, where the realization of what other people saw when they saw me was not what my roots in this country was. And I say that because, you know, most people, when they looked at me, they said, oh, he's not from here. And in that being seen almost in a way like Evie is saying as an alien, right? a foreigner, a person who is not necessarily here. I took that differently from what Evie was, I think, alluding to, not necessarily even being from this planet, being like an alien, if that, if I'm thinking about it correctly, Evie. Yeah, you are. Uh, yeah. I just kept saying, you know, wow, I can go to Brooklyn and nobody messes with me. I can go to Queens and no one messes with me. I can go to the Bronx and no one messes with me. And like I said, it wasn't until I got older, much older, that I realized that no one associated me with being an African-American, a person born in this country. Everyone associated me with being a person who immigrated to this country, whose roots weren't from this country, where my father was born in Chicago, but my father's family is from Barbados by way of Africa. <laughs> I always say that. Whereas my mother, she was born in Birmingham, Alabama. And of course, you know, if you look at her features, she looks almost um, Somalian. Um, she has a, a, a African, so to speak, feature set. And then you look at me, it's like, oh, no, this guy is from Senegal. You know, he looks like he's from Senegal. And so no one ever associated me with the struggles that we as Africans in America or African-Americans experience and almost to a def 
to a to a um a detriment for ourselves we get trapped whereas a lot of folks who come to this country as immigrants as people who have experienced life other places knowing the value of education knowing the value of hard work knowing the value of family you know to be born in this country in the mid 70s late 70s early 80s is to be born in a war and really that war was perpetuated against us before that time but it's to be born in a war where you are not manufacturing any of the tools of that war that is being heaped upon you and so you're not creating you know you don't have a gun a gun manufacturing place in your garage and you know a warehouse where you can create these things in your backyard you're not growing uh poppy you know you're not growing uh cocaine uh stuff and you know whatever the paraphernalia is you know you don't have marijuana plants in your backyard and so somehow these things are inundated in the black and brown communities and i don't want to necessarily just say it from that perspective because it's it's also inundated in america but the epidemic that we experience in more recent times which is given the really beautiful name the opioid epidemic it allows for people to see this as a crisis to see this as a instead of us locking people up and throwing throwing away the key we need to um, open up the betty ford clinics of the world we need to really assist these people who are having this trouble to try to help them get out of you know this this trouble that they're in whereas in the in the 80s I remember very clearly walking around my neighborhood and neighborhoods any neighborhood I was in and in the blackest neighborhoods and the most downtrodden neighborhoods and the most marginalized neighborhoods we would see what looked like skittle tops and those those tops were tops of crack you know crack vials you know the tops of crack you would see it and it wouldn't it wouldn't be unnatural to see that it would be like very normal it would be very normal to see young men and, and young girls, young boys and young girls playing in alleys that um, homeless people also frequent at night, uh, flipping on dirty mattresses. I mean, and when I think about that now, I'm like, that is the most horrific reality a parent wants to even like for uh, for my child, for my sons, my daughters to have to have gone through what I went through is like, I would never want them to have to play in a in an alley where there's a dirty mattress that has rusted coils coming out of it but that was what we experienced it was it was so natural and coupled with that was the oppression that wasn't abnormal it was very normal to see police officers in the streets and the relationship to be um a relationship in some ways that was a balanced relationship hey so-and-so hey mr officer you know you would see them and it would be cool and all of that and they would know you there was there was a more familial type of bond that was happening but then there was also the officers there was always the officers how small they may have been who would be considered the bad apples they would be the ones that would be given those famous names in our communities like robocop you know they would be the ones who would come into the community um, to transfer, and I'm, I'm trying to explain it this way so that it can be very clearly understood, transfer their low sense of self-worth and value into the community to make the community fear them, which then elevates their own sense of, of strength. 
right? And so to see people get beat up by cops was normal. To see people, and I'm when I say beat up, I'm talking about people being beat up, people being handcuffed, people being hit with the batons, you know, hitting their private areas, all of that stuff, and also never be taken to the precinct. Be like literally like just let out of the car, you know, uh, next time uh, it'll be different would be sometimes what you would hear. And you would never understand what that meant until fast forward a little bit to the era of, you know, the late 80s, the era where an attorney who would become my appellate attorney, who was perhaps one of the legends in America, was fighting a trial for a young man named Larry Davis and how the story kind of exploded into this like unimaginable, unrealistic, real life movie slash uh, Jason Bourne slash all of the stuff that you can see today. Here's a man who had aspirations and dreams, according to his own story, that he wanted to be a hip hop artist, but he was marginalized. He was part of that marginalized community. He was part of the war that he didn't know he was born into. And because of the um, inability to become successful yet as a hip hop artist, he then began to sell drugs. And who did he sell drugs for? For the police department. And at this point, he wanted to get out. He felt like he had had enough. And I've, I've never uh, heard him say this. Of course, he passed away. Um, he was murdered in prison. But I suspect that his conscience got the best of him. Because we always knew in the communities that we came from, even the people that were selling drugs to the community, they also provided the community with a certain level of security. They gave parties. They They gave back in a way that was kind of uh, weird when you think about it now, but it, it was their, their way of saying, we know we're doing wrong and this is our way to try to do right. And so they would, you know, give out turkeys on Thanksgiving, you know, they would be the ones that would pay people's rents, you know, um, they would also be the ones that would make sure that nobody said anything by the paying of the rents and the, <laughs> the turkeys giving the turkey giveaways and the block parties and all of that stuff. It was a, it was a, it was taking those lemons and making lemonade. You know, it was really a different type of New York and a different type of experience. But to those of us who were growing up in that time frame, we didn't know, like we had no idea that the communities that EB was talking about that we both experienced were manufactured that way. Meaning people were really burning down buildings or setting fires to buildings to drive the property value down so that later on, and this is, you know, when you think about, when you think about planning, we have to, and what, by we, I'm talking about those of us who care to live in a future where the kaleidoscope of the human family is able to become the dream of a Dr. King and really a dream of our ancestors, right? That same shirt that Ava DuVernay had on that said, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. The hope of the future being able to survive, but survive in a great way, not by hook or by crook, you know? And we didn't know that we were experiencing that. We were experiencing redlining happening right now, but 
that redlining was a part of a hundred year plan. Right. We may plan for, hey, man, it's great in our communities when we can begin to train our young people to think you have to have a plan. Like what you what are you planning to do tomorrow? What are you planning to do this week? What are you planning to do this month? Hey, how's your yearly plan going? Right. And getting them introduced to that, getting them introduced to planning five years out. But we're also as we begin to experience this war, we're realizing that. We're not even in the game yet, even at that level. We're not in the game because we're coming against a people who have planned centuries into the future. How to keep power one-sided. How to let those of us who have been born in this country without the seeds of value that says you have to work hard, education matters, things of that nature who, you know, you leave your home, you know, many young women experience this, they'll leave their homes in the morning to go to work. And the same individuals that are outside holding up the side of the building are there when they return home after working eight hour shifts, sometimes more than that. And you wonder why is it that they can't or haven't yet decided to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? It's because they don't have no boots in the first place. It's that old story that when you become relatively conscious as Dr. Baldwin, I'm, I'm going to call him Dr. James Baldwin, right? To be relatively conscious in America and to be a black person is to be in a state of rage at all times, is to be walking in a bilingual reality where you are careful to keep your own mind arrested so that you can just keep moving forward and not fall apart. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new 
new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Thank you for that. It, it, it's, um, I had a conversation with um, Austin Channing Brown a couple months back and um, Wow. The, oh, wow. <laughs> the first line of her book is white people exhaust me. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, and then when you read the rest of her book, especially mm. as a, you know, like as a middle-aged white male, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, Oh, Oh. And this is just the tip, the very, 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 very tip of the iceberg. And so when you describe it, you know, and, and I think there's been this really, interesting expanding conversation right now that I'm, we're going to circle back to, you know, but, th- but this is the backdrop of what both EB and you are experiencing coming up um, in New York city, especially at a, at a, at a time in the city where they're emerging from the seventies. Um, and like you said, there were literally parts of the city that were burning, not because it just happened to catch fire because a lot of landlords were torching their buildings so they could clear way for gentrification and higher values and things like that. And this really strange dynamic between law enforcement and kids in different neighborhoods, your um, your story has has been pretty well told and documented. Eighty nine, the what starts out as a woman jogging in Central Park, you and some other people are brought in through a lot of coercion and pressure, end up in various different levels confessing to something that nobody did, and shortly after in 90 convicted you end up in a juvenile prison effectively for close to seven years a horrific experience one of the the group which uh, becomes known back then as central park five and since then the exonerated five ends up in rikers um i guess because he was 16 at the time which for those of us who you know like are, are from new york like Everyone knows the reputation of that place as just being horrendous. And to imagine 
an adult being there is horrifying. To imagine a 16-year-old kid being there is is horrendous. So you all in, endure this absolute devastation um, for anywhere from six to 13 years. Quote, do your time, which was never your time in the first place. And then emerged, you, I guess you end up released, um, timing is right, 96, late 96? 97. 97. Yeah, early right. 97, yeah. Right. So, so you and Evie meet a couple years later. One of my curiosities is, and we'll circle back a bit to what that experience was like, because you end up writing about this in this really powerful book together. But you would eventually become exonerated in 2002 because the person whose DNA was actually a part of this ended up confessing. And then you know, definitive testing shows that all of you never should have been there in the first place. In the window between when you're released from prison and that happens, what's happening in your mind, in your heart, in your life? Because in theory, you've done your time, which was never your time to do. You're out, but in the mind of the world, you're still guilty of a crime. Right. What what's happening is hiding in plain sight. You're you're literally hiding in plain sight. I've been over six feet tall since I was 12 years old. I was very recognizable. And the only thing that was different was that I didn't have a flat top. Like I looked similar to my youth, you know? And the the struggle to figure it out took years i think part of figuring it out is still happening there is a a rest that happened in my development that needed to not be true and not happen in the first place in order for me to live life freer you know there's a certain reality that happens i think when you become conscious like Dr. James Baldwin said, where you're like, oh, sugar, honey, iced tea. You mean to tell me that poverty is a manufactured thing? That there's a school to prison pipeline that is designed and planned as young as four years old or in the fourth grade, I think it is, if it's not four years old. There's this thing that's going on right alongside of regular normal life that I've often, as I begin to understand it a lot more, what I realize is that it's appearing as racial inequality. But the truth is that it's not. The truth is that it's really spiritual wickedness in high and low places. And so we're battling the appearance of wanting to have our skin color matter. But the truth is that there's people who don't look like me, who know we matter, who treat us like we matter, but they're not the ones who are in power to make all lives matter, right? And so therefore the struggle looks like a racial kind of thing, you know? Um, trying to navigate the waters of adulthood when you haven't even experienced youth, right? Your toolkit, your, your, your tool bag is, is, is you open it up and you don't have the same tools that others have. 
who've been able to make mistakes and say, oh, right, my mother said, make sure I read my work and try to do my homework, you know, so therefore when I'm prepared for the next day, I wake up in the morning and I'm reviewing my notes so that I can go into class prepared and ready as opposed to trying to do my homework just before I get to school, being completely unprepared in some ways and in many ways not prepared at all. You know, on the one hand, those become the building blocks to help you succeed as a person through trial and error. You don't even have that. And what you have is this overwhelming sense of, I'm thinking about the word mistake, but I'm thinking about it in the context of you being a mistake, you being seen as worthless, and you begin to move throughout your life as a mistake. And you're trying to hold it together. You're trying to keep it all under wraps and everyone else on the outside is looking in and doesn't see that. They don't know that that's what your struggles are. You know, you put a suit and a tie on and you, you change your mentality for yourself because of that. And so there was times where I would work in healthcare. And this is, of course, this was afterwards. This is after I started understanding things, right? I was in the school, I was in the classroom of life, but I was skipping grades because I was trying to figure it out. And I realized that I could change my, my thoughts by changing my appearance. It had nothing to do with however, how anyone else saw me, but it had everything to do with how I saw myself. And so if I walked by a mirror and looked at myself, I said, wow, I clean up real nice, you know, and, and feel good about that. Feel like, okay, I could hold my head up a little bit more. And so on the inside, my head was down, but I'm training myself to have thicker skin. I'm training myself to survive. I'm training myself to be able to know why so that I can live anyhow. It's that old statement of Nietzsche. If you know the why, you can live anyhow. And I'm trying to understand that. I'm trying to live that. I'm trying to figure out, like I'm already knowing spiritually that the hand of God is in everything. I'm already knowing that because that's the that's the foundation of family. That's the foundation of spirituality that I came from. But now I have to know it in truth as opposed to theory. I have to begin to live it, right? And I have to begin to believe it. And so now I'm walking throughout life on purpose. I'm careful about where I step because the, the rug was pulled out from me as a 15-year-old, I'm making sure that I'm intentional about where I go, right? I'm walking out of the store that I bought things from with the receipt in my hand, right? I'm doing all of these things to protect myself, but I'm also hopeful. I'm also desirous of, of knowing that this struggle that I went through was not for nothing. And so as things begin to progress, um, Ibi doesn't know this. I don't, I don't think she knows this, but uh, there was a time where before coming to the classroom that we both met, I was looking for a professor named Donna Richards. And I'm looking, 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 and I can't find Donna Richards anywhere. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you, it's almost like looking for a job. If you don't have the stick the wherewithal 
to keep going. You knock on one door and say, oh, man, I, it didn't work. But I had the stick-to-itiveness. A friend of mine said, listen, there's a professor at Hunter that you need to meet. And her name is Donna Richards. And so I'm, I'm at Hunter looking for Donna Richards, who had changed her name to Marimba Ani. I don't, I can't find Donna Richards. Who, no one knows who Donna Richards is until I go back to the friend and I say, listen, I've been looking for a few weeks now. You know, I can't, I can't find, am I spelling the name right? <laughs> is there like a, 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 a different uh, spin? Uh, you know, is it, is it Italian? Is it French? Is it, well, what is it? Like, what am I getting wrong? And they say, let me, hold on, let me find out. And they get back to me. Mind you, this is still the era where we don't have cell phones. We have beepers. We have pagers. We have, uh, we have quarters in our pocket that we can use to pay, that, to, to make a phone call after we get a message on our pager. And I get this message back from her letting me know, oh, she changed her name to Marimba Ani. The world opened up. I find Marimba Ani, Professor Dr. Marimba Ani. And the truth about the matter was that I was not a student per se, an official student. I shouldn't say a student. I wasn't an official student in her class. This was part of the classroom of life. I wasn't an official student in her class, but I was allowed to be in her classroom, a classroom where she was very selective about who was able to be taught by her. She would tell us often that look around half of you would not be here by the end of the week. And it wasn't because she would tell people that they couldn't be here. They just wasn't prepared for the level of scholastics, for the depths of the vibration that she was about to take them to, you know? And I was there being, like being tuned, like listening to, listening to expression, you know, I'll never forget, there was this one class I was in, her class, and she asked the question, and it was an African statement. And in the statement, she said, Umuntu, Ungumuntu, Ungabantu. And, you know, we were all looking around, and of course, a lot of the students had already been in her class. They, they, they were return students, and so they were more familiar with her teaching style. And she said, what do you hear? What's similar? What's familiar? And someone said, Muntu, Untu, or Muntu, right? And come to find out, she was getting us to think, even outside of the box, that we didn't know this language, we hadn't been brought up in this language, but this was a part of our Africanness, right? One student says, after we found out that it meant a person, right? The, I think the literal definition of umuntu ungumuntu ungabantu was a person is a person because there are people. And so as she asked all of us, one of the students said, well, that's like, that's like saying, I be me, you be you, you be me, I be you, we be we. The level of community that is created from that thought process. If I can walk in your shoes, if I can experience life vicariously through you, through conversation, and you can experience life vicariously through me through conversation, xenophobia is gone. 
the idea that you are that different becomes a myth, defunct. And we're able to see each other for the first time. We're able to move with each other for the first time, even though the experiences may be different. But you are allowed to be, and I am allowed to be, because we allow each other to be. Mm. And it was that kind of thing where it was like, wow, the epiphanies that were going on, the ability for me to begin to think about the meditations that I learned about in prison began to take root in a different way. I began to play around on the movie of my mind of the possibilities of what could be. And then I began to be introduced to various folks, you know, like Dre Oba that Evie may know, you know, and, and, and various folks and meeting Evie, you know, and, and, and how that happened. It was like the stars were lining up. It was like, you are ready now. When the, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that moment too. I, I'd love, Evie, I'd love, I'd love to hear sort of like your lens on it as well. Well, I want to add that um, Donut Richards did change her name to Marimba Ani. So Donna Richards was part of the Student Nonviolent Coronating Committee and SNCC, basically. And she was part of the cohort um, that went to Guinea to learn their sort of um, decolonizing ways when at a time when they were just trying to figure out independence. And part of that cohort was also John Lewis, the late John Lewis. So she and John Lewis worked closely together and she was uh, married to Bob Moses, who was also an important voice in SNCC. Uh, so Donna Richards was radicalized in a different way uh, where she became more African-centered. She studied African culture. Um, she earned her PhD in anthropology. So she took um, her political awareness and savvy and combined that with what she understood and learned about African history and culture, merged the two, and her classes were incredibly innovative and it wasn't just a class, it was a rites of passage. There was ritual drama. I broke down several times in her classes. Um, one of the things that she would do was present a sli silent slideshow. And she would show images of indigenous Africans and then showed images right after that of the Middle Passage. Then she showed images of slavery. She would show children in the cotton fields, then white families with uh, their black um, nannies, and then um, several images of black men being lynched, and then the civil rights movement, and then the black power movement, and it was just a succession of images, and just the you know this was in the late '90s, so those old school slideshows where you heard the click and the image, and about you know 45 minutes of that, and you'd see those images play black, and, and it it hits you. There is no lecture or book can capture that moment when it finally hits you. And we're young and we're tr finally figuring out, figuring out what the slavery thing means mm. and what the result, what the consequences are. So from me being scared of, uh, of black boys in my neighborhood to being radicalized at Hunter College through Mama Rembra's classes, that's exactly what happened. By 1999, I also changed my name. I wrote for the college newspaper. Um, I was part, Marimba Ani 
had, um, well, we formed a club based on Murmani's teachings called Daughters of Africa and Stolen Legacy. And we were just a bunch of Black kids coming together and figuring out how do we survive this world? And as you're talking about New York City, Youssef, I'm realizing if if you were a Black or Brown kid and grew up in New York City or an immigrant child growing up in New York City, we I think we suffer from a little bit of a PTSD. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All the news stories, you know, it's not just the news stories. It's for the kids who were playing outside and who lived it. There's so much trauma. Um, and even, and I think um, some of the Irish and Italian kids lived in Bensonhurst and other neighborhoods throughout New York City. There's some really horrible things that happened, you know, in the classrooms and on the street. We played outside and we had to interact with each other without adult supervision. Uh, so by the time I, I meet you, Youssef, Amadou Diallo had just happened in February. Mm. I met you in April of 1999. And that incident radicalized a lot of us. And that was part of the spoken word movement. And this is how we figured things out. We got on the stage and just blurted out our truths. And at that time, everyone was writing a poem about 41 shots. And it was rage, a lot of rage, a lot of hurt. Uh, we were taking to the streets very much, very much like what's happening now across the country. I like to say New York City, 80s and 90s New York City is a microcosm of what is happening now in the country because we had Donald Trump was not a political figure, but he was a political figure, if you understand, sort of the underhanded, passing money under the table yeah. kind of politics. He was part of that. We had Giuliani. We had Koch before that. We had David Dinkins. All of that racial. You would think, looking back, I and mean, you would think it's a, you know, it's the South, but it was New York City, and racial tension was huge. By the time. I see you in the class. Um, and what Dr. Marimba Hani had done when you walked in was hold your face. I don't know if you remember that. She said something to the effect of, I knew you all didn't do wow. it. Wow. Yeah. She knew who you were as soon as you walked in and you had not yet been exonerated. You were still um, falsely registered as a sex offender. And you did come in with a peacoat. <laughs> uh, what you were saying about a shirt and tie, you can't walk in that classroom extremely well-dressed, wow. but you were our age. Yeah. And at first we didn't know for all of, you know, the, the case happened. And when we, we sort of forgotten about it, because we were thinking about Amadou Diallo and you walked in and we're, who's this guy, who's this guy. And then within a few minutes, wow, Youssef Salam of the Central Park Five. I was a features editor for the, the Envoy, the Hunter Envoy, oh, and the managing yeah. editor of the Shield magazine. There was the college newspaper yeah. and then there was the black magazine. Yeah, yeah. And I was chasing that lead. I was going to get that story. Wow, Youssef Salam of the Central Park Five just walked into our class. We didn't even know if you were out. And he's out and he's right there. I got to go get the story. And of course, you know, I followed you out. And you walked with me and we talked. The longest conversation that we had was about Donald Trump. Until this day, it is the longest conversation I've ever had about <laughs> Donald Trump. And you were kind of explaining to me, I remember the feeling of like, I didn't do it. This man was responsible for us going to jail because he put out an ad in the newspaper. And I was like, I remember that ad. It was in my sixth grade classroom. 
so for me, I was trying to get the story. Um, I was writing about Mumia Abdul-Jamal. Um, I was writing about the hands off Assada movement and the free all political prisoners movement. Wow. I had interviewed Mama Rimba. I was looking to interview Mutulu Shakur and Afeni Shakur. Um, so I was, my goal was to get a byline in the New York Times, but before that, the Village Voice. The Village Voice mm. was a radical newspaper at that time. So all that was just me chasing that story. <laughs> I wanted to get you on paper, interview with, about your experiences. I knew you were in and around the school, but I never saw you again. Again, you were not part of that class, but you were around. Um, I had asked around, you were around, people knew you, we have some mutual friends. But I didn't follow up with that story. And I think it was because, you know, years later, this was supposed to happen. So, yeah, that's what happened in, in spring of 1999. And then we ran into each other again in the fall of 2017. And that was a debut YA author. And I was wondering why knew, no young people knew of your story. This was before the When They See Us Netflix movie. And again, I chased that story. I wanted to tell that story because it's part of my New York upbringing too. One of the beautiful things about this experience, this shared experience that Evie is talking about and describing, what I didn't know, which I was able to experience through some of these, these classes, was there were moments of specialness that were going on. It, it was happening in the classroom, but then there were times where people would pop up. I remember one time she had everybody close their eyes and there was a, uh, you, could, you could hear like way off in the distance. We were talking about something and then she said, okay, everybody close their eyes. And we, we were doing this thing. I forgot what she described it, but we all closed our eyes in the distance was the sounds of Africa. There was a man playing, um, man, I forget the name of this instrument. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, it's a round with a, yeah, and a string. And he's playing this, he's playing this instrument and he's, I mean, it's like, he's, we don't know where he's at. It just sounds like it's like a mile away. And slowly it gets louder as he comes closer and closer and closer. And he's in the classroom now and we're, being led in a meditation by Dr. Marimba, Ani. And then she tells us to open our eyes and we all slowly open our eyes. And there's this man who looked like he just got off of the plane from Africa. Now he didn't, of course, but he looked like that. He looked like he was the motherland, you know? And he had this beautiful smile on his face and he was playing this instrument and we were all just absorbed in emotion and what i realized about the the beauty of what was going on in dr marimba ani's classes is that she was also taking us through sankofa she was also giving us these beautiful experiences that were in us like this trauma in us through what she described as mitochondria dna where we could break those generational curses. We could literally dive into self and become physicians of self to then release self from the trauma of being a person who continues and perpetuates that trauma. 
And so I'm saying all of that to say that all of that was supposed to happen. All of that was necessary. All of that was valuable. And perhaps as Ivy is, is alluding to, the moment of me being able to tell my story in the fullness of where it is now and where it became, perhaps I wasn't ready yet. You know, the world had not experienced the things that they have been experiencing. And even when we think about this beautiful book that we have written, this, this time that this book is being birthed into, it's like we didn't plan this, but it appears as if we did. This is an answer to what's going on in America right now. This is a part of the change. This is like the story of the marathon continuing, the breaking of the generational curses happening in the pages of this book and therefore in the minds of its readers. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, 
It it is when when you you read the book, the timing is unusual. <laughs> um, but it, it is just right. I mean, it, you mentioned that you two had essentially gone your separate ways, you know, like and spent 15, 16, 17 years probably loosely aware of each other. Maybe you're building a writing career as a YA novelist. Yusuf, you're continuing education and then speaking all over the world and becoming an advocate for these things that you so that you experienced personally and for change that you fiercely wanted to get behind. And you come back together in 2017 and reconnect with the intention of saying, well, let's co-create, let's collaborate to create something specifically for that audience that Ibi had been writing for, for, for years. And that, I guess, Yusuf, you had really been wanting to spend more time speaking with and speaking to. And, and this ends up as, as the book, Punching the Air, which is a window into, it's a novel, but it really is a window into everything that we've been talking about. It's, it's you know, loosely based on a, on a character, Amal, who has a similar experience, you know, uh, and, and is accused, and then he's in prison, and, it, and, and his, his emotional and cognitive and spiritual experiences while he's there. Um, and there's interesting, as, as we're having this conversation, now I'm I'm getting the benefit of your deeper relationship and individual experiences, and it's informing. Now when I think about the book, I can see so many different things moving out of it. Even the the experience you just uh, described about you know hearing this instrument in the distance, or or having the professor invite you to experience different things. You know that I can see. I I, I wonder now. You know, there's a character in the book, Imani, who is this poet slash teacher. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to wonder, well, who's that actually based on, you know, and, and I think I'm getting a pretty good, good idea. Um, and part of my fascination also, I just want to, I'm curious about something structural. The book is powerful and it speaks to so many of the things that are happening in the moment. And I do want to pull a, a couple of specific topics to, to explore with you. But the structure of the book that you both chose, I thought was really powerful. Um, it added not just to the content, but the structure, which was you, you chose to write it as a novel in verse, which I've actually never really seen before. And I was curious about that choice. Well, when I ran into Youssef in 2017 uh, at a book festival, he was there to speak and he was also selling his book of poetry, um, his self-published book of poetry. And of course, I already knew his story. And I was shocked a little bit to know that he self-published this book of poems, and still the world doesn't seem to have known the depth, the level of depth and just the importance of the Central Park Five jogger case. Of course, the Ken Burns documentary was out, but I needed young people to know his particular story. It's very unique. The Central Park Five story is unique. His particular worldview adds another layer of perspective. And I just didn't think it was fair that he was self-publishing when I was in the midst of, in the young adult literature world, a boom of social justice books, um, books addressing police brutality um, and different things that we're talking about right now. And I told him, look, people will pay you to tell your story. <laughs> you don't have to self-publish. This isn't an important story. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. And there are books, there are, you know, lots of wonderful books written in verse. Uh, Jason Reynolds, Long Way Down, Elizabeth 
Tomatoes. Right, right, right. Uh, the Poet X um, and several books before that. But his poems were there. There are about five of his poems in Punching the Air uh, when you, you don't know which ones they are because <laughs> I seamlessly wove them in, but the foundation was already there. I was a spoken word poet in college. Uh, Yusef wrote poems in, while he was incarcerated and I built the story around his poetry and I took Yusef's worldview, all the things that he just mentioned now, I it's sort of a perspective that I shaped into different poems, just trying to capture what it means to be a Black boy in a classroom, uh, the school to prison pipeline, the 13th Amendment. I convey them all in poetry through the lens of a 16-year-old boy. And that's basically because of Yusef's poems. Yeah, I mean, re- reading it... Um... I had this weird experience of it reading from a, from a narrative uh, experience as a novel, but you get the rhythm and the beats and the flow of poetry, which almost pulls you into a semi-trance-like <laughs> state while you're reading. You know, it's like when you go and see really powerful spoken word, you're transported. And there was something about this where the story is powerful, the writing is powerful, and the way that it was written and the verse it allowed you to move beyond the experience of just reading. And and I wonder if that also allows you to transfer into it and to understand the deeper ideas and ideals um, differently, almost on a more felt level. So we didn't want this to be just about the prison industrial complex or the criminal injustice system, as Youssef likes to say. I wanted this to be about a child, first and foremost. And we step into the shoes, the skin, the body of a child, we get into his soul. So this is, you know, through him writing his poetry, that there are illustrations in the final copy. You have to get the final copy to see the illustrations. <laughs> um, the illustrations take it to another level. Yeah. Omar, T. Pasha, just some spot illustrations that really convey what the poems are trying to say. But we wanted to get into the heart of this boy. When you're speaking to Youssef, you're getting, yes, you're getting an understanding of the criminal injustice system, but you're also getting a sort of wisdom um, that we don't always see from young people. He had about three or four, some of the other poems were a little rough, Youssef, (laughs) but three or four very powerful poems that he wrote as a teen. And I was, you know, I was of the understanding that he was incredibly aware, self-aware, and conscious of what was happening and why it was happening. Sometimes we think, you know, young people get into these situations because they don't understand not to talk to the police or they don't understand not to, you know, say something without a lawyer present or without a parent present. Youssef knew all those things. Um, If you saw the movie, his mother advocated for him and he was the only one who did not speak on tape. A black child is not immune to injustices by virtue of knowing what those injustices are. So Amal is incredibly self-aware. He understands the school of prison pipeline. He understands the 13th Amendment, but he's still trapped in it. Mm. So what, what is the antidote to all of that? It's not just awareness and it's not just people saying that we need to change it because there isn't a prison abolitionist in the story. 
there is something that happens in the end. And I think that is his salvation in the way that it was Yusef's salvation. We don't want to give too much away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, of, of course. Um, you both mentioned the timing of this book. You know, a book like this, you know, speaks so much to the moment we're in, but clearly it's written before this particular moment. And yet, Evie, I think it was you who, who first referenced that, maybe it was both of you, that in fact, the protest, the awareness of violence, of the under deeper understanding of the, the prison industrial complex, the protest, the uprising that we are seeing now on a mass scale, there were flashes of very, very similar things and moments, especially in New York City back in the late in the late eighties um, and and nineties. And now, so as we sit here having this conversation now in twenty twenty living through this moment where there's a global pandemic, where it feels like there is an expansive wave of awakening, not as a state, but as a process and protests, uh, uprising, calls to defund the police, calls for communities to become much more involved in the way that we take care of each other. I'm curious how both of you are experiencing this moment and if and how it feels different to you. I think the difference of this moment, the specialness of this moment feels like we are ready to receive the blessing of change. And I say that because on a global scale for the recognition of darker skin to be important, to be valuable for the understanding of the things that are discussed in this book, like the school to prison pipeline. Um, the fact that art is a, is a medium that allows people to be great. And we explore that in a way that is really powerful in this book, how all of these things play into the time right now. Like this, this is the time, this is our time, right? There's never been a better time than now for us as a people to stand in unison, right? There's this explanation of unity being more powerful than an atomic bomb. And the reason why it's more powerful than an atomic bomb is because once you are unified, if you are a part of America and you realize that the part that you are playing, the role that you're playing in America doesn't suit you, your conscience is speaking to you and allowing you to say, choose different. Then when the oppressor says, shoot, kill, maim, there's no one there to carry out those requests because then all of the people who are there become almost like the spook who sat by the door, right? They are very aware that it is more important for the, the value system to be raised up than for me to get a paycheck. Because what does it benefit me to live lavishly when my neighbor is struggling, right? I become food then for my neighbor. But if we collectively can raise everything up and say, hold on, we need to be able to have a system in place. Like I talked to young people and I became very aware 
that even in the desire to want to go into the profession of policing, that shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be a crime for you to become a police officer, right? It should be the realization that you are the example that we see on the side of the cop cars throughout America. You represent to serve and protect, not the inception of what that was to be, right? So we know that through, as we go in and do the knowledge, as we would say as youngsters, and we go into the history to know the ledge of what it is to get the knowledge of what it is to be a police officer, we realize that that was an outgrowth of slavery being abolished and slavery needing to be continued by another name. And so we see the Confederacy and we see all of these things happening and all of these things that have been happening. And we realize that part of the part that the role that people play is the spotlight has never been shown on good policing. The young girl in 2013 who stood up and asked me a question. She said, I'm a cadet. I'm 13. I want to become a cop. What advice can you give me? My initial thought was tell her to run. Do not go into that profession. Do not be a part of that. It was quickly stifled and, 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 and arrested and killed by a better thought. That thought was I was talking to the future. <laughs> and my responsibility at this time is to plant the seed or rather provide the water for the seed that is already planted for the beautiful outgrowth to happen in this person. And this person then becomes a antidote. I was going to say virus, but of course she is the antidote, not the virus, right? to what it is to be a good cop. And so my advice was that she does her job. We've all experienced, those of us who live in New York City, especially, that on the side of the cop cars, they also add the three ideals, courtesy, professionalism, and respect. Right. And so we get what we get from that is, if this young girl who was 13 years old at the time becomes a police officer who understands that she is serving and protecting all, that she is to treat people with courtesy, professionalism, and respect. She will be the best officer. That's the type of officers that we need. And so all of it is like this gumbo. And the best gumbo has the best ingredients, right? And so we're adding to the pot of ingredients of what we want to imagine the world to be so that we become our ancestors' wildest dreams, so that we become the answer to the questions that we've all had, so that we finally get an opportunity to provide real change and resources for everyone. Because when you give people the opportunity to understand that they matter, psychosocially, they begin to move as if they matter. They begin to be a part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. They realize that in Dr. King's speech where he said, when you realize what your purpose is in life, 
do it as if God himself called you to do it at this very moment. And instead of giving the most grandiose ex example of it, hey, the president of the United States, the person running the greatest corporation in America or in the world, perhaps, he said, if it is your life to become a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Leah Tom Price sang before the opera, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep the streets in excellence to be the best that there was and is. Because all of those things are needed. We need somebody on all levels of life to show up in those levels of life. But more importantly, we need for their value to be recognized and to be compensated as such. Yeah, Evie. Well, you know, listening to you, Seth, and us reminiscing about New York City, I'm realizing that if we were older, let's say 20 years older, um, and we'd be reminiscing about New York City, we'd have much more incidents to add to the ones that we already have. And I do have older friends well, we were taught by Professor Marimba Ani, who is, I think she is in her early 80s now, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. She looks very young. <laughs> but to sit at the feet of elders and to listen to them recount their experiences with dealing with racial injustice in the world and in this country, you start to wonder, will it change? Will it ever change? And Sometimes I often ask my older friends, well, how has it become better? What's better? And they do have, the list is just as long as the things that have not changed. Uh, just as many things have changed. So right now is to lean into the things that are different. I am so grateful that young people are talking about defunding police. Um, there's also dismantling the police. There's abolishing the prison industrial complex. There, um, some really radical ideas are making it to the forefront of our conversations, collective conversations. We used to talk about these things as college students in New York City in our clubs. Never did we think that it would be a headline in the New York Times. Yeah. I wrote the word abolition into punching the air three years ago, not thinking that this would be part of the mainstream conversation. And I went back and forth between reform and abolition. Hmm. And I wanted to make the Imani the character of radical teaching artists who has big hopes for the young people that she teaches. So she's not a suit and tie kind of a politician where she would ask for prison reform. She's an artist, so she's asking for abolition. And I said, okay, I'm going to go with that. This sounds radical, but let me just put it in there. And now it's not so radical. <laughs> it is still, we're talking about it. Yeah, That's the first step. Yeah. And some of us have a hard time trying to wrap our minds around what that would look like. But the way that these things begin to change is to start having those conversations. Maybe talking about abolition means that there will be greater reform. We can meet in the middle. But the point is young people are talking about these things. And that's my job as a writer for young people. I listen to what 
15 and 16 year olds are talking about. They're hopeless right now. They don't know what college is going to look like for them. They don't know what the job market is going to look like for them. So they wanna tear it all down. Why not? It's not working for us. It's not going to work for us. There's a pandemic. What is the 30%? What, what's the unemployment rate at right now? Wow. So there is a sense of just like, this is not working. This has never worked. This is not working for us now. And this will not work for us later. What can we build? What's the new thing that we could build in its place? So in that sense, a mall in Punching the Air is that kind of radical kid who's still caught up in the system. But the way that he pushes his radical ideas is through his art. And, and again, it is what saves him in the end. I just gave it away. No, I didn't. <laughs> but it is what ultimately saves him. And we didn't talk about you. I know we're out of time, but Yusef is an artist as well. And I was inspired by his illustrations. Um, I saw his notebook. I saw the pants that he wore on the night, on that fateful night in Central Park, uh, was covered in illustrations and art. So, yep, this is just as much a book about art as it is about criminal injustice in the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's so interesting how both of you came to art in different ways at different moments of your life, but it became central for similar reasons, though the circumstances that you moved through were different and the things that caused suffering and caused pain that you grappled with were different. The underlying turning to art as both a form of expression, refuge, and understanding was similar. And I think for so many of us, it's a powerful place to go. And, and uh, that story is really beautifully told in Punching the Air as well. And um, and now I do want to see more of Yusuf's uh, <laughs> art and illustrations and anything that you can put up there. Like Now I'm really curious. Now I'm, I'm hungry for it to a certain extent. Yeah. But um I know, I think this feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So I always end with the same question that I'd love to uh, in, invite each of you to uh, to uh, respond to. So in the context of, of this, the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Wow. I think to live a good life for me would be to live a life of value, of worth, of purpose, to understand our ability to plant seeds of goodness in the future so that the shade of those trees will be experienced not by your own family alone, but also by community and by the world. Well, the idea of radical honesty comes to mind. Uh, radical honesty, not in the way that it would hurt someone, but radical empathetic honesty. Um, I love it when people say, I don't know, or they say, I don't understand this, or I'm still working through it. I still have a lot of room to grow. I think we could all stand to be radically honest with ourselves, our family members, and the people in our community to say, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is what I understand. This is what I don't know. This is what I know. All those uh, statements can come from a truly honest, radical place in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.